Welcome to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. C.F.W. Walther was a parish pastor, later professor and first president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He was also the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. These sermons were preached from 1840 to 1870, predominantly in congregations of the St. Louis area. Unfortunately, we do not know the specific dates and locations of most of these sermons as they have been lost to time. These sermons were originally preached and published in German and translated by Donald Heck. They're available in two volumes from Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. Thank you for listening. The 16th Sunday after Trinity, Luke 7, 11 to 17. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen. In our Savior, dear Christian hearers, a trick often used in our day by the enemies of Christendom is alleging that the miracles in Scripture had meaning only for the times in which they took place. They were to call the attention of the ignorant people to the doctrine which then was new. Nowadays, they prove nothing. We can be indifferent to and ignore them completely. Nowadays, one has to examine the inner excellence of the doctrine on that basis alone. Accept it. Of course, this sounds completely harmless. Let us, however, go to the bottom of this allegation. It, is, it very soon becomes clear that they really aim to undermine secretly all Christianity. It gives force to the opinion that Christianity actually is a religion of reason. Reason invented it, and therefore it needs no divine credentials in the form of miracles. Natural religion, of course, needs no supernatural confirmation. Let no one permit himself to be taken in by such seemingly innocent assertions. Without miracles... The Bible would be no Bible. Christ, no Christ. If we surrender the sword of miracles into the hands of unbelievers, we make, our, we make ourselves defenseless. We surrender the divinity of our religion. All the prophets and apostles begin with the words, Thus says the Lord. All maintained that what they taught was delivered to them by God in a mysterious way. Those who rejected them rejected God, their Creator and Lord. And Christ says even more. He assures us, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, John 14, 9. All may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father, John 5, 23. Now, who, without these miracles, could believe that God himself sent Christ, the apostles, and the prophets to reveal his will to men, which otherwise no one could have known? Does not the Bible in a thousand places, teach things that run completely counter to the laws of reason? Who could take his reason captive under the obedience of faith had the authors of the Bible not shown by miracles that God made them his authorized agents? Must we not accept their work at the risk of losing divine grace? Moreover, even if an enthusiast taught such that was wrong, who could distinguish him from a true prophet if one could not say to him, do a miracle, which only God can do. Do as Christ and his apostles did. Then we will believe you. 
Bear this also in mind. The true religion must be for all men. It must be so constituted that not only the learned but also the simple are in a position to examine it, distinguish it from false religions, and accept it with perfect conviction. The miracles are therefore just as glorious as they are indispensable. Even a child can perceive that he can do what alone is in God's power to do, must either be God himself or be equipped by God to show that he has received himself to him. The greatest miracle which one can do is, beyond a doubt, the raising of a dead person. We hear about this in today's Gospel. Let us now consider the importance of this miracle in somewhat more detail to strengthen our Christian conviction. Luke seven, eleven to 17 Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was been carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. So far our text. This important portion of the gospel story just read directs our attention to the great miracle of the resurrection of the young man at Nain. In this connection, we consider how no man can deny it, frightening it is to all unbelievers, and finally, most comforting to all Christians. We pray, Lord Jesus, worshiped by men and angels, appear through your word in our hearts in your greatness and glory. May we then when everyone else reviles and rejects you, receive you, believe on you, find comfort in you, confess and honor you here in time and hereafter in eternity. Amen. If, my friends, a miracle is to be important, it must have the power to convince us of the truth of the matter for the confirmation of which it took place. Nothing dare be connected with it, which in any way can awaken the suspicion of deceit or fraud. Everything possible must be done to make the truth of the miracle evident to everyone. Even the heathen and the Roman Catholic Church tell of miracles that are supposed to have taken place to confirm their religion. But all these miracles clearly bear the stamp of incredible fiction. They make those religions, which must seek to provide respect for themselves with such lying means, more suspicious than ever. The miracles confirm nothing. A true miracle dare never take place secretly. It cannot be worked in such a way as though one had diligently avoided an investigation or had purposely avoided the searching, testing eye of the foe. Not only must it occur in such a way that everyone must know and confess, this could not be carried out by natural power. Here is God's finger. But the miracle also had several important and unimpeachable eyewitnesses. Now, let us apply this standard to the miracle related in our gospel. 
Do we find something that awakens the least suspicion that it was invented? Listen now and judge for yourself. During his journeys through the country, Christ, as one could say, accidentally comes to the vicinity of Nain. And see, there were they were there just carrying a dead man through the gate of the city in order to bury him. The weeping, widowed mother and a long line of sorrowing relatives, friends, and neighbors prove by their tears that the young man is really dead. No one suspects what would take place now. Christ draws near to the large funeral procession. Turning to the mother, he speaks to her with an aggrieving heart. Do not weep. However, the Lord not only wishes to dry up the stream of tears by a command, but also by the unspeakable joy of reunion. What does he do? He comes up and touches the casket in order to ask the pallbearers to stand still. And thereupon he speaks so that the entire assembly hears it. Young man, I say to you, arise. And behold, with terror and dread, everyone suddenly perceives how the dead man sits up, speaks clearly to those present, and thereupon sinks into the arms and breast of his dearly beloved mother. Now in this connection, does the least little thing occur which raises our suspicion? Nothing. For if a mocker wanted to say that the young man only appeared to be dead, he must have the question, how could Christ know that? Besides, how could he know that he, who was supposed to be dead, would awaken from his coma in that moment? Must not the mocker then admit that Christ is omniscient, all-knowing? In order to deny the miracle of the resurrection, must he not ascribe another miracle to Christ, which is just as great? In order to deny his omnipotence, must he not glorify his omniscience? What a contradiction! So you see that it is absolutely certain that a reasonable man dares not speak one word against this miracle. For the strengthening of our faith, however, let us ponder this a bit more, and every shadow of doubt will disappear. In order to hinder investigation of an invented miracle, many of the smaller details are passed over in silence. What takes place in our gospel, however? First of all, the time is exactly indicated. It took place in the first year of Christ's ministry as he journeyed through Galilee, coming from Capernaum. The place where the miracle took place is exactly indicated. It took place at Nain, at the gate which led to the cemetery. The special circumstances of the resurrection are related. He was a young man, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Outside the mother of the dead man, the eyewitnesses who were present are also described in detail. They were not only many disciples who accompanied Christ on the way, but also a great number of the inhabitants of the city of Nain who had wanted to go along to the grave. Finally, the impression which the miracle made is described. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Yes, in order that nothing be forgotten, we are still reminded that this story became quickly known at the time in every place, and the news of this soon crossed the very borders of the region. Now, I ask you, who can still pass for a reasonable person and want to cast doubt upon the story of this miracle? Suppose this were untrue. What would have happened when Luke wrote this story and enemies and friends read it? Would not the enemies immediately have made inquiries at Nain? 
If they would have found the story untrue in merely one small detail, would they not have immediately called Luke and all the apostles godless liars and deceivers? Who, when many eyewitnesses still lived, would have accepted Christianity if one had been able to prove that the story of the miracle was fabricated? What would Saul, he who at first was such a fearful learned foe of Christians, have done? Would he ever have been converted? Would he have preached that very same gospel in which he had uncovered inaccuracies upon investigating the miracle? No. Then the web of lies would soon have been torn and the whole church would have been scattered. Us, all human works are. But this did not occur. Thousands upon thousands, humble and great, learned and unlearned, joined the gospel. Although the apostles said, to all enemies. These miracles took place there, in that city, before the eyes of these people. Inquire, and you will find that we speak the truth. Even at the time of the apostles, and shortly thereafter, Jewish and heathen writers attacked the Christian religion. Now, had they been able to prove that these stories of the evangelists were not true, what would they have done? Would they have left this weapon unused? With it, they would have been able to overturn the whole Christian religion with a single blow. But I can assure you of the very opposite. And I can prove it to you from many passages from the writings of the enemies of the Christian religion of the time, that they all, without exception, admitted what the evangelists related actually took place. Yes, even the Talmud and the Quran concede that Christ actually did the miracles related, and even awakened the very dead. How gladly would the enemies of the Christian faith have denied it, if not hundreds and thousands had been able to contradict them and say, we have seen it with our eyes and heard it with our very own ears. Not the apostles, but you are the liars. Therefore, recognize that the great miracle of the resurrection of the young man at Nain was witnessed by friends and enemies. No reasonable man can deny it. It is, therefore, in the second place, terrifying to all unbelievers. Although in that time when eyewitnesses still lived and one could most easily distinguish the truth from lies, although I say even the greatest unbelievers and at that time the most ingenuous, the most learned, and the most malicious enemies had to leave our miracle stand, today unbelievers impudently deny what no one can deny. They are not ashamed to lie to the poor, ignorant people. They maintain that one cannot prove whether the miracles related in the Bible actually took place. They dare do this because they think, No Jew who lived at the time can accuse me of lying. Thank God they are all now dead. Therefore, fearlessly deny everything. Oh, that God would have mercy on the poor, misled people and foil such lying messengers from the abyss. Beyond a doubt, Whoever has the impudence to deny historical facts, and such facts that have all the certification that only history can give, such a person is just as much a godly liar as he who denies an evil deed in the execution of which he is arrested. Alas, if it were only an untruth that would kill merely mortal bodies of those who accepted it, it would not be so frightful. But the way these lies are so now often published causes all who believe them to lose their soul and their salvation. This is the most horrible part of it. 
Why is the story of our gospel today so frightful for all unbelievers? Because it cuts off all excuses for their unbelief. Through this resurrection, Christ has proven that he is whom he said he was, the son of the living God. When a prophet does a miracle, he did it in the name of God or Christ, never in his own name. Christ, however, says, young man, I say to you, arise. He did this miracle in his own name and thereby confirmed that word, I and the Father are one, John 10.30. Believe in God, believe also in me, John 14.1. This is certain. Whoever can awaken a dead person by his own power must be the true God and eternal life himself. For all people, angels, and all creatures, death is an invincible power. Only he who possesses the almighty power of the Creator can take away again the decomposition which has entered into the cells of the body. Only he can restore the organic union which was dissolved. Only he can return the flowing blood into its previous life-giving course. Only he can bring back the departed soul into the body and reunite the bond between both which had been torn. In a word, only he can conquer death and restore life. Everyone perceives that. Therefore, we hear when Christ had awakened Lazarus from the dead, the assembled chief priests and Pharisees hurriedly took counsel and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. John eleven forty seven and 48. They therefore took counsel to kill him. The unbelieving Pharisees and chief priests of the God, godless uh, goddess of reason of our day also know that the miracles of the unusual unwakening of the dead are the strongest proof of Christ's divinity. They have also held a council of blood against Christ and decided Christ must once again die. He must die in the hearts of all Christians. In our day, they do that by insolently denying all his miracles. Will Christ die in that way, however? He who dwells in the heavens laughs at them. The Lord mocks them. He who with his word could awaken the young man at Nain from the deep sleep of death his word will and must prevail, despite the opposition and raging of his foes. For he has said, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew sixteen eighteen. How must the preacher of lies feel today, if he wishes to preach upon our precious gospel? Must he not blush? Must he not be blanch when he reads? And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Must not the talking of that dead man, who had been made alive, sound like the horrible voice of a spirit before whom he must tremble like an aspen leaf? No. Experience proves something entirely different. Such false prophets flippantly read that which they themselves judge and condemn. And then they unblushingly open their mouth to twist and blaspheme God's word. Will Christ watch this abomination forever? Oh, no. A time will come when Christ's mouth will not only awoke, awaken the young man at Nain for the second time, but all the dead who sleep in that grave. 
A time will come when God's trumpet will sound and Christ will say, You dead, arise. The time of judgment has come. Appear. Appear to receive your eternal judgment. This word of Christ will re-echo throughout heaven and earth. Move all lands and seas. Convulse all heights and depths. All mountains and valleys. Open all graves. And in a second. Present all the dead before the flashing countenance of the Most High Son of God. The Lord of death and judge of the world. Then. Then the unbelievers will tremble. They will flee with howling from the face of him whom they blasphemed and not be able to escape. They will seek death and not find it. They have fallen into the hand of the Almighty. Now, here in the third place, how the resurrection of the young man at Nain is highly comforting for all true Christians. Ponder, my dear Christian, how great, how irresistible his power must be, against whom even the might of death itself is merely weakness. Do you have reason to be worried that the host of Christ's enemies will in our day finally erase his church from the earth? <laughs> no. Christ has up till now so powerfully protected his church that it cannot go down. Moreover, he will also do it. He will rescue his honor and foil all the weak who revolt against him. Therefore, if you are weak in your faith, go in spirit to Nain. See how Christ himself seizes death by its jaws and took his plunder from him. Rejoice that you believe in such a great Savior, who speaks and it is done, who commands and it stands fast. Ah, my dear Christian, if you are attacked by your sins, if you are anxious for comfort because of your misdeeds, return quickly to Nain. There you will find comfort. Bear in mind that he who can conquer death must also be the Lord of sin, for death is the payment of sin, and sin is the sting of death. Therefore, in firm faith, hold fast to Jesus Christ. In him you will find the forgiveness of all your sins. In him, victory over all the foes of your soul. In him, grace, life, and salvation. If you are frightened by death, if you must weep at the grave of your loved ones, you also hurry in spirit to Nain. Jesus Christ, who turned tears of sorrow into tears of joy, can also dry your tears. As certainly as the widow again embraced her dear son, so through Christ's miraculous power, you must someday also joyfully embrace your loved one who died in the faith. A blessed morning will come when Christ will say to all his own on a new earth and in a new heaven, Weep not, all sorrow is now ended. I have conquered for you. Rejoice with me. There will be no more separation, no more departure. Finally, my dear Christians, if the thought of your own last hour worries you, take the word of Christ into your heart. Young man, I say to you, arise. Behold, at this word, death fled and life returned. So Christ has destroyed also your death and brought life and immortality to light also for you. Just fall peacefully asleep. Jesus watches. You will someday awaken, and then there will be no more death, for the first death will be gone. Alleluia. Amen.
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. You've been listening to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. These sermons are available in two volumes as a part of Walther's Works, Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. We thank you for tuning in, and we pray that God's Word has and will continue to be a great blessing in your life.